Uh, this uh, Saturday evening at 6 p.m., uh, Bob and Ming are having a pastor friend of theirs from Vietnam over, and he's going to share what God's doing there in Vietnam, and they're having a barbecue. So uh, you can, uh, there's flyers, stand up, Bob. He's the guy back there. And uh, so if you're interested in meeting somebody from Vietnam and, and getting a good barbecue dinner and having some fellowship on Saturday night, uh, talk to Bob, and, and I'll leave this flyer up here if anybody needs it as well, because I already have one on my computer. So let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. And we finished the 17th chapter, I believe, last week. And so here we're coming to chapter 18, which kind of winds up Paul's second missionary journey and then takes us into the beginning of his third missionary journey. And so chapter 18, verse 1, after these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Athens and Corinth are both on the southern end of Greece, and um, so I don't know if we have that slide up there yet, but we will. And um, but uh, Athens and Greece are down there, and remember, Paul had come down from up in Philippi and found his way down there to Corinth and spent quite a bit of time there. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So they had been, Priscilla and Aquila had been living in Rome, but um, the, uh, the uh, emperor at that time, Claudius, had made a declaration that all Jews needed to leave Rome. Now, uh, Josephus never mentions this event, but there are um, Roman historians who have um, records of this happening. Apparently what happened is because of the disputes between the Jews and the Christians, uh, the Jews were upset at the, about the Christians teaching the gospel, and so the Jews were raising a ruckus as they did everywhere against the Christians, and so... In Rome, what they knew was, hey, this is a Jewish problem, and so they just threw all the Jews out of Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila made their way over to, they could have stayed in Italy, but they knew no doubt that the problems were going to move with them, and so they had moved to Corinth. And um, so because he was of the same trade, that is, Paul connected with them because they were Christians who were also tent makers, he stayed with them and worked for by occupation. They were tent makers. Paul off and on worked as a tent maker throughout his um, career as a missionary. A lot, of, a lot of the churches were really poor, and the ones that weren't poor um, sometimes were very selfish. And so even though he was entitled to be paid, and some people would use this as evidence that we shouldn't have professional pastors, that we should just have elders who are amateurs who take turns teaching and that kind of a thing. Certainly not the picture that you get from the New Testament, nor is that the case ever in, in the history of the church. But in Paul's case, because of the nature of his ministry and because he had a, a good skill that could make him money as he was traveling around different places, and Paul didn't want to just be connected to one church, as most pastors were. He was an apostle who was planting churches and then going around to the different churches. So he chose to work when he needed to. But at the same time, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. The synagogue was a place where anyone who knew something about the Bible could go and be free to speak. And so that was throughout much of Paul's career that was the place where he would go first. It was like an open forum kind of opportunity for him. And so he would speak to Jews and Greeks uh, from the synagogue. And when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, remember he had, he had told them to wait there, and Macedonia was up in the north, northern part of Greece. He had left them up there by Philippi when he left to come south. And so... Now we have our map up here. So notice, Paul had 
been up in here and they'd kind of chased him down here so he went to Athens and to Corinth and at this point uh, Silas and Timothy were still up here um, by this time there were really only the Romans had conquered Greece and they broke it up into basically just two provinces uh, Macedonia and Achaia in the south and so really Thrace wasn't a province anymore but so they were up in Macedonia up in the north and he was waiting for them to come to the south and um, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That was when they had come. Um, interesting that Paul wasn't just expressing opinions. He wasn't just kind of doing his job. He felt the Spirit just driving him to preach the gospel. And so he was compelled by the Spirit and he testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. They didn't particularly want to hear it for the most part, but the Spirit was telling him what to do, and he did what the Spirit told him to do. And it's a great example. And, you know, it makes me think um, myself, and really for all of us, to consider what is the Spirit actually compelling you to do? Is there something that he's just driving you to do, and yet maybe you're still not doing it? And if the Spirit is compelling you, um, it's wise to go along with that because he will take you to the point where you're supposed to be eventually. Um, Jonah could have gone to Nineveh by land. Instead, he took the sea route via whale. And so it, it, we won't know what the Spirit's compelling us to do unless we're asking him, unless we're constantly opening ourselves up to him and saying, what do you want me to do? And what the Spirit wants you to do may not be what you've always done. He may call you to make changes in your life. Um, and, and so just to be open to him. At the same time, the Spirit's not just going to drop a little hint and then it's up to you to figure it out. When, when the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, he'll make it very clear as long as you're listening, as long as you don't miss the message. And it's hard to miss because he is a very, very compelling character as he speaks in our lives, he'll usually do it from several different directions and in several different ways. But when they opposed him, verse 6, and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So sometimes he would brush the dust off his feet. In this case, he shook his clothes symbolically to say, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Paul said that throughout his whole life. <laughs> he was constantly threatening the Jews with the fact that I'm going to the Gentiles. For the most part, it was the Gentiles who listened and responded. And he was called the apostle to the Gentiles. And yet, he never stopped trying to reach the Jews. I think he would say, okay, forget you guys. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Because he understood that that might get them jealous. It would certainly upset them. And so he was saying that, and in fact he did go to the Gentiles, but you'll still see him all through the book. I mean, he goes back to Jerusalem and goes to the temple. He's constantly going to synagogues, but he's sending this message that says, if you guys don't want this, I'm not going to force it on you. There are people who will, will listen. And verse 7, he departed from there, and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. So perhaps a different synagogue, but um, this guy Justice lived in a house that was adjacent to the synagogue. And then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed and were baptized. So even despite the rejection by many of the Jews, there were others, including the head of the synagogue, who responded to this message. They probably kind of admired Paul's guts, the way he stood up to the people in the other synagogues, and it got them to thinking. But at that, in, in this instance, there in Corinth, a lot of people were getting saved. And then the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, and he said, and this is Jesus speaking to him, do not be afraid. 
but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I love this little verse. It's um, God is letting him know that even though there are people who are opposed to him, and even though there'll be difficulties, yet he says, you know what? You say what I want you to say. Don't compromise your message. Now, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and you can turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment, you realize that it was difficult and Paul was nervous. I mean, God wouldn't tell you to not be afraid if you weren't afraid. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 is reminding these Christians of, that, of this particular time there in Corinth and how he came to them. And 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. Now, Corinth was a city that was known for its sophistication. Corinth was a really pagan, evil city, and often gross sin kind of goes hand in hand with brilliance and creativity for some reason. And Corinth was the kind of place where you could easily be intimidated because they had great orators there, huge temples, great places to teach, and all kinds of really um, compelling teaching that was going on from all different areas. And so, in a way, everybody who would teach would want to go there, but at the same time, it's sort of intimidating when you wonder how they're going to respond to you. But he said, I didn't come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so here Paul's talking about this particular time, and you can see why if he was shaky, if he was fearful, if he was being careful how he spoke, deliberately not coming off as very flashy, even though that's what they respected and appreciated, you can see why the Lord kind of came to him and said, don't worry, Paul, You're, you are every bit the man to do the, the ministry that I have for this area. You are the one that I have called to do this, and I don't want you to be afraid. And I don't want you to just think that you're going to fail because maybe the crowd isn't responding to you immediately. God says, I'm with you. And ultimately, that's the answer to every bit of fear that we have. God's with us. And if God's with us, what should we be afraid of? What should we be intimidated by? Um, sometimes you, you really want to say something and you don't because you're afraid. Other times you're probably better off not saying something and you do. Um, I've found that in general, the time to speak up is the time when you really hate to say it. You know it needs to be said, but you're really holding back and you're nervous about saying something. Those are the times when boldness is called for. There are other times when you just really want to say something. Sometimes those are a good time to just sit back and wait and pace yourself and not be anxious. But we should never not speak because of fear. There are plenty of reasons not to speak. There are plenty of reasons to keep your mouth shut. Most times, the less you say, the better. Proverbs goes through that very well. But, you know, in this case... It was the opposite thing. It was time to speak. It was important for him to speak up. And so God said, you know, don't be afraid. Keep, speak, don't keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you. Now, there were plenty of times when Paul was attacked and plenty of times when he was injured. In this case, the Lord was telling him there in Corinth, you're not going to get hurt this time. It's not going to happen. Speak up, even though this is a very controversial message that you have in a very difficult venue, but you speak. For I have many people in this city. 
And that's really a, that's a little phrase that fascinates me. Um, and commentators sort of disagree on what he, the Lord actually meant here, saying this to Paul. Um, on the one hand, he could have been referring to all the people who he was trying to save. And, and God may have been referring to those who hadn't yet been saved, but who were going to as being his people. And in that case, he would be saying, Paul, you need to speak up because there's a bunch of people here that I want to save. But not only that, there in Corinth, in a wicked city like that, there were a lot of people who had already been saved. Some that Paul didn't even know about. And yet the gospel was breaking out. And, and there were many people from this area who would end up becoming missionaries and carrying the message other places. And so I think that, that the Lord here was also telling Paul, you have friends. When, when you're out doing what God's called you to do, sometimes it's very lonely. Sometimes you feel like nobody understands, nobody gets this, everyone's against me. And the Lord, I think, was telling Paul, you're not alone. And in telling him not to be afraid, and hey, you're not alone, it reminds us of Elijah after his great victory on Mount Carmel. And, you know, he was just so, Jezebel threatened to kill him, and he was burned out, and he just ran away and he told God he wanted to die and he ultimately found himself in a cave and the Lord came and met him there but he just didn't even want to meet the Lord. He was just so frustrated and so discouraged and so he gave, Elijah gave a little speech to, to the Lord that was in essence, man look at what Jezebel has done. This isn't work. It looks like miracles but nobody's responding. And he said, I and I alone am left, and they're looking for me because they want to kill me. And ultimately, that's what discouragement looks like. It looks like it's just me. No one gets it. Nobody understands. Everyone around me is just pulling on me and wanting pieces of me. And it's in those times when, as the Lord did for Elijah, he said, hey, you know, there's still 10,000 people who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. There's more people out there than you think. And then he told them, I have a guy, Elisha, who is going to be your assistant. And ultimately, he, I'll use him. And Elisha was the one who would end up taking over for Elijah. But, but he had that one person set out who was so loyal to Elijah that even in the end, when Elijah said, I'm going to die, you better stay here, Elisha said, no, you're not going to get rid of me. I'm staying right there. What an encouraging thing and a comfort that must have been for him to think he was alone and to find that not only there are a bunch of people who are supportive, yet there was one who really understood that God brought along. And so in this case, and with Paul, God ended up showing him that there were some great people who stood with him and would till the end. There were a lot of people who bailed on him too, and it always hurt Paul when that happened. But here the Lord was just saying, you know what, you're not alone. I've got other people in this city. I have things that you know, I'm doing in your life, and, and it's not just going to be you all alone. That's not going to happen. And so he continued there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And when Gallio was proconsul or governor of Achaia, remember Achaia is that whole southern region including Corinth and Athens. Gallio, by the way, um, was the brother of Seneca, Seneca the famous philosopher. And Seneca said about Gallio, he's the most reasonable and, and gentle man that I've ever known. And so Gallio had a great reputation of being a mellow um, good man. But he was proconsul. The Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, or literally the bema seat. This was a place where, well, typically the award ceremonies would take place on the bema, but it was also apparently in this case sort of a small claims court where you could drag somebody there and demand that justice be done. And so they pulled him there and they said, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. 
Now, they didn't say which law, because they're not going to bring them to a Roman proconsul just for breaking Jewish law. So the implication is he's doing things against uh, the Roman government as well. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Paul knew how to defend himself, certainly. But before he even had a chance to do it, this guy Galileo said to the Jews, look, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O oh Jews, there'd be a reason why I should put up with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I don't want to be a judge of such matters. Basically just got it thrown out of court. And he drove them from the judgment seat. He goes, you guys, these Jewish leaders, he goes, you're, you're just hassling over words. You obviously have an agenda against this guy. I don't want anything to do with it. Get out of here. And so then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Sosthenes was probably the one who was the leader of the Jews at that point by being a ruler of a synagogue. He was the one who was trying to bring, drag Paul into small claims court. And so the, the Gentiles that were around there beat him up um, just out, right out in front of the court. In those days, if you brought a case and, and um, it was found to have no merit, you'd pay for it. They'd rough you up a little bit for wasting the court's time. And I have to wonder if we wouldn't be in better shape if every, every goofy lawsuit that gets brought that's just for no purpose, it seems like you ought to have to be dealt with. And they didn't do it officially. It was just kind of a tradition they had of roughing up the loser. So <laughs> Galileo took no notice of these things. He was just like, yeah, whatever. Now, interestingly, the Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue at the time, was perhaps later he became a Christian because in, in the, the book of 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Sosthenes was actually with him as he wrote the letter. So perhaps uh, they beat some sense into him. But at any rate, he, most commentators believe that he ended up becoming a Christian. So Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Sennacheria, for he had taken a vow. So Paul was, he left Corinth. Corinth was a seaport. And he starts heading back. He's, he's intending to go back to Syria, which is, you know, where he came from ultimately, but he was going to go by way of Asia Minor and Ephesus. So as he came to here, they, uh, he got his hair cut, which I cut my own hair today just to illustrate this point. What, <laughs> what they would do when they would cut their hair, they would, they would sometimes take a vow, like a Nazarite vow or other vows, whereby they would just say, okay, for this period of time, often it was for eight days, sometimes it was for longer, they would say, I'm not going to cut my hair for a certain time, and I'm also going to fast during that time and, and devote, stay away from wine, and I'm going to really devote myself to um, the things of the Lord. And so then there was a kind of a rite of purification where after that time would end, they would go to the synagogue or to the temple if they were in Jerusalem and have their hair buzzed off and be ceremonially cleansed. And so Paul was doing that. It was still, he was still very much a part of the Jewish culture, even though he never imposed this on the Gentiles. He made it really clear it wasn't necessary for them to do it. But he still kept that tradition. And so he, uh, he ended up... Uh, on his way back, cut his hair, and he came to Ephesus, and he left everybody else there. And, you know, Ephesus is a ways across where he sailed from here and came all the way over to here. Remember, this is modern-day Turkey. And so he came to Ephesus. And um, entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, still trying. And when, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he didn't agree. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast 
in Jerusalem. For I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. At this point, he wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for the Passover. We don't know why that was so important for him at this time, but that's what he wanted to do. And so stayed in Ephesus just for a short time. Later, he's going to spend a long time in Ephesus. But at this point, he's sailed. And when he had landed at Caesarea, which as you can see by the map, Caesarea is right about in the middle of where Israel is, right, right there on the coast, um, near, uh, you know, not too far, a little north of where Tel Aviv is today. And uh, Tel Aviv is near Joppa, which is just south of Caesarea. And so he went to Caesarea and he greeted the church and he went down to Antioch. So oh, he went to Ces landed at Caesarea and he went up and greeted the church. So remember, up in the Bible is always to Jerusalem. Everything else is down from Jerusalem. And so he, he took the boat to Caesarea and then he, um, you know, left Caesarea here and went what we would call down, what they would call up, to Jerusalem and greeted the brethren there. And then he headed back up to Antioch in Syria where he had started and which was his base of operations there. And so he spent some time there and uh, in Antioch and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So he spends a little time in Antioch, and then he heads on to his third missionary journey. So if they can get that slide up. But remember, Galatia is up here in northern Turkey. And so he left from Antioch on the third journey and headed over this way to go along and to touch on some of these churches that are along here to Iconium and these areas which are in a part of Galatia. And so he takes that route. Now we're into Paul's third missionary journey. Uh, it, technically, he only has three missionary journeys, but we sometimes talk about the fourth missionary journey almost euphemistically because it's when he was taken as a prisoner to go to Rome will be his fourth journey. But here... He goes there and strengthened all the disciples. I like that. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, who was born at Alexandria, Alexandria is in Egypt, as you might know, was a real hotbed for Judaism and for Christianity. Alexandria was at the time the intellectual center of the world in a lot of ways. Rome was more the political center Greek was somewhat the cultural center, um, but Alexandria was the intellectual center of the world. There are still, I mean, every time they dig in Alexandria, they find more libraries and things like that. It was a place where people really had a good education. And so um, Apollos was a guy who came from Alexandria, and it says he was an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, and he came to Ephesus. Now, Apollos was probably eloquent and mighty in the scriptures, partly because of the great education that he had had. Like I say, Alexandria was kind of like Boston is in our country. Um, you'd never know it by the Red Sox fans, but, but Boston is a place that's just surrounded by amazing institutes of learning. Some of the greatest colleges in the world are right there around Boston. And so he came from a place like that, and he came over to Ephesus, and this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So as he uh, found his way over to Ephesus here, and that's where Paul's going to meet up with him as he comes across Turkey, comes across uh, Asia Minor, um, he is here in Ephesus and teaching what he knew, which only took it up to the point of obviously the fact that Jesus had come, but mostly he didn't know most of what the New Testament was teaching. He just had a real profound understanding of the Old Testament, and so he was teaching, he was teaching um, 
there and people really enjoyed his teaching, but he only knew up to John the Baptist and the baptism of John. And so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. And when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He was accurate as far as he went, but Aquila and Priscilla sat this guy down and said, man, you're really gifted, you're, you're an awesome guy, you know a lot, you communicate well, but we need to give you some other pieces to the puzzle. Because, I mean, you haven't even heard the biggest part of the story and the culmination of all that God was doing. It's amazing to me in two respects that Priscilla and Aquila, who were mature believers, but they were basically construction workers, that they were willing to speak up to a guy who was an incredibly gifted orator and sit him down privately instead of facing him off publicly and just said, hey, there's some stuff we want to show you. What you're saying is great, but I want, we want to help you. And I love the kind of mentoring relationship that they had with this young, talented guy that they were willing to put their energy and efforts into helping him along. And I think it's just something that is so important for everyone who is advancing in years to some degree to always be looking behind you for young, anointed people to help set them on their way and to encourage them. But it's also surprising to me that Apollos would listen because he was a guy who was well-educated, way more than Priscilla and Aquila were, and certainly he built an audience and he was gifted, and yet he humbled himself and listened to what they had to say. And so it speaks not only of him being talented, but of him also having a humility. Humility is extremely rare on the part of talented people. There are exceptions. There are some incredibly talented people who are humble, but that's certainly not the general rule. Generally, when people feel like, you know what, I'm smarter than you, therefore I don't need to listen to anything that you say. And so it's why a lot of really talented people end up, you know, just, just imploding. Because they get to where they cannot listen to anyone else, and therefore they can't hear the warnings that God might even bring before them. And so often you'll, I've seen some just incredibly gifted young men who God was using, ministry was booming, great things were happening, but the pride that they had, the lack of humility, caused them to end up falling apart and everything God wanted to do being destroyed because they just wouldn't listen to anyone. But Apollos listened as they explained. And so they, they ministered to him and explained to him this stuff and he continued ministering and when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote exhorting the disciples to receive him and when he arrived he greatly helped those who had believed through grace for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he couldn't wait once he got the full picture, once he got the whole story, he was like, man, i got to take this to Athens and Corinth. And so they sent him off on a missionary trip. He was there in Ephesus. There were a lot of other good people there too. So, but as soon as he began to see the whole picture, he couldn't wait to get over to Achaia, the southern part of Greece where Corinth and Athens are. And so he went there and he just faced off the Jewish leaders made a real strong case for, for grace, made a real strong case for Jesus as the Messiah, and greatly helped those who had believed through grace, encouraging the ones who had accepted the Lord there through Paul being there a couple times, and, and then just encouraging them and at the same time evangelizing publicly the Jews and showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Someone who has a great education can be incredibly powerful potentially when they really, when Jesus gets a hold of them. Paul was one of those guys. He went from persecuting the church 
to where he began planting churches. And how do you argue with a guy who knows more Judaism than you do, and now he's telling you that Jesus is the culmination of all of that. And so Apollos was the same kind of character. And you remember in 2 Corinthians, 1st and 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about the division in Corinth. And there were some people who were always going to be fans of Paul because he brought the gospel there first. There were other people who were fans of Apollos because, man, that guy was slick and smart and more impressive Probably a tall, good-looking guy. Paul was a short, little, squirrely-looking guy. And so Apollos had his fans. Paul said, you know what? Don't even do this. I am of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. He said, we're all of Christ. I'm not getting into that kind of game. But this is kind of where it all started when he went to Corinth and Athens to preach. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions came to Ephesus and found some disciples. So, you know, here, as he was coming here and found Apollos, and Apollos headed across here, Paul settled down in Ephesus here and stayed there in Asia and found some people there who were believers. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So these guys that he found in Ephesus were disciples. They were believers. But... They didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit, and the only time they had been baptized was when they were baptized by John the Baptist. And so they just figured they went on and no doubt believed in Jesus, but, but uh, didn't understand the fullness of walking in the Spirit, of being filled with the Spirit. Um, if they were believers, perhaps they even had the Holy Spirit inside them, but he hadn't come upon them, it's hard to say. But at any rate, what he did with them is said, do you realize that John the Baptist was talking about Jesus? And so, you know, this is, this is what the whole picture is. This is what the rest of the story is. And when they had heard that, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They said, hey, we want, we want everything that there is. And so he rebaptized. And the only time in the Bible where we see, that I can think of, where we see someone rebaptized. But they were baptized by John, which wasn't bad. Jesus himself was baptized by John. But in this case, because of what God had done in their lives, they were baptized again in the name of the Lord Jesus. And therefore, I think people who are baptized when they don't really understand the full implication of it, like when they were baptized by John, they didn't understand that it was all about Jesus at that point. Jesus was still alive. Um, but I think that if you were baptized when you were so young that it wasn't your choice or you didn't remember, or I think if you were baptized at a time and then you go through a really time when you're a long ways away from God and, and you just want to testify that I'm starting over and I'm, and I'm committed to the Lord, then I think it's a legitimate thing sometimes to be rebaptized just to make sure that it's baptism based on your convictions and your belief rather than the belief of your parents or whatever. And when Paul had laid hands on them, either while he was baptizing them or afterwards, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all, not 12 years old, there were 12 of them. So they received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came upon them. There was no doubt about what was happening because they were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Not everyone who had the Holy Spirit come upon them spoke in tongues um, or prophesied, but some did, and in this case, here in Ephesus, they did. People argue about this passage and, and think that it's just a, you know, a, a, a Loctite case for a second experience after salvation. Um, I think there are some biblical precedents for 
there being a time when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and fills you as opposed to the Holy Spirit coming in you. But I think this is probably a weak support for it because we don't know for sure what they knew and what they believed. And this could have just been their conversion experience as well. So it was in this transitional time and you don't want to make too much of it. The, the good news is they got filled with the Spirit. And so there were 12 of them and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months um, here in, in uh, Ephesus. And uh, he was reasoning and persuading concerning things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe but spoke evil of the way, which is what the church was called in those days was the way, because of Jesus saying, I am the way. Before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he was in the synagogue preaching, but... It wasn't going so well. People weren't receiving it well. So he just said, okay, fine. Took the guys with him and left, and they went to um, the school of Tyrannus. We don't really know anything about Tyrannus or his school, but we know that in those days in Ephesus, there were all sorts of private schools, and it wasn't unusual for them to just rent out their facility for itinerant teachers and things like that. And so probably just a place where he connected and began to teach there instead. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. He had this amazing ability to uh, see people healed as he prayed for them, and not even just praying for them, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. So, you know, a lot of shyster evangelists have sold handkerchiefs and things like that. This was the only time in the scriptures where you see this happening, really. But God was pouring his spirit out in such a great way there in Ephesus that Paul didn't even have to go for someone to be healed. They could just take take his handkerchief, and that's amazing to me. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. His, he, he was so effective that these Jewish exorcists who hadn't even accepted Jesus, they started using the name of Jesus and the name of Paul and some of the demons freaked out and left just on the basis of somebody who didn't believe in Christ using the name of Jesus. And uh, so it was working for them too. Kind of like, I think, today when there are people who take biblical principles and they teach them, and even though they really don't know God, they can do things so much the way that God teaches it that it can actually work. I think this is somewhat the case of the success of some psychological programs that, that use some biblical principles that they've inadvertently discovered and therefore they have great success with it. I think um, you know the recovery movement, for a lot of people going through um, Alcoholics Anonymous and seeing those steps that were inspired by biblical principles, and there are people who go through AA and are really helped even though they don't realize that there really is one higher power. And maybe they don't even come to know him, but their lives are better off. I don't think we should attack that. Um, I don't think we should be against a movement like that. Hey, anybody who's getting people off a horrible addiction, I'm all for it. I am absolutely supportive of anything that can do that. I would also love to see people take it a step further and come to meet Jesus. And the truth is, if you live your life much better and you die sober and go to hell, it's not that great. But, but these guys were actually, you know, taking people away, so at least demons were being delivered. And so, uh, but then there's this kind of funny thing. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jewish high priest, and they were 
some of these Jewish exorcists that were using the name of Jesus. And one time the evil spirit answered and said to them, they said, hey, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out. And the demon said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? <laughs> kind, of, kind of interesting. Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them and overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So sometimes it didn't go so well. In this case, they came upon a pretty strong demon. And because they weren't real believers, the demon saw through the scam and ended up beating them up and pantsing them. And, you know, they ran off kind of embarrassed by the whole thing. Um, it kind of reminds me of people who try to do the work of God, but they don't really know him, or they aren't really doing it in his power. You know, somebody can start a ministry and talk about Jesus, and some people will get saved and some good things will happen. But give it some time, go through difficulty, go through some trials and struggles, often these guys who were talking a good game, but it was just in the flesh, they didn't really mean it in their heart, they were phonies, ultimately get beat up and pantsed. I think a lot of times that's what happens, frankly, and I'm not judging any one in particular. Um, I don't even have one person in mind. There are so many of them that I could use as an illustration. But where there are guys who have this powerful ministry and then all of a sudden they're completely embarrassed and humiliated and, and everything comes crashing down around them. And sometimes I just have to wonder, were they like the sons of Sceva? Were they guys who were using the right language and following the right principles, but ultimately it caught up to them and because they didn't have that personal walk with the Lord, didn't have that real commitment to the Lord, next thing they know they're getting knocked around, pants pulled down and they're, you know, pants on the ground. And, uh, sorry, that's almost too old of a reference now. But, um, you know, and, and they, get, they get whipped and they're done and they're out of it. And to me, I no more cry about phony pastors who fall and then are not in the ministry anymore. That doesn't disturb me any more than it disturbs me that the sons of Sceva got nailed. It's purification. That's, that's just the way it happens. And so... Uh, eventually, it won't catch up to you right away, but eventually it does. And um, it certainly did for them. And this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Ultimately, by their failure, Jesus was magnified. And a lot of times that's why the Lord deals with somebody who's a phony. Because he wants to make it really clear that they're out of it, and so he nails them so that people realize, oh, I was stumbled by what they were doing in the name of Jesus, but now I realize Jesus was stumbled by it too, and he, he deals with them. And so the result of this judgment on these guys who were phony ministers ended up uh, bringing glory to God because um, everybody obviously... It was better than YouTube. Something like this happened in those days. Everyone heard about it. And so, uh, so the name of the Lord was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. See, that's the other thing. When one person gets nailed for hypocrisy, other people tend to go, uh, well, there are a few things maybe I need to confess. It causes everyone to decide... I need to be an open book. I need to live in a, in, a, in, a, in a path of integrity. I don't want to be a hypocrite because I see what happens to hypocrites and so I better come clean. I better be honest with the Lord. And that's always the case and you can see why they were afraid too. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them and it told... 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Ephesus was a major center for magic. And 
this magic was mostly illusions, sleight of hand and things like that that could fool people. The people were very superstitious, but they used it to promote paganism, even as people do today. You know, these people that do like psychic surgeries and things like that where they can just go in a trance and reach inside someone and pull out their cancer or whatever, they're not really doing that. That's just fake. They're trying to make you to believe that Satan is more powerful than he is. And so they play these tricks. That's why they needed so many books because this wasn't just something that you'd just mystically do. People are suckers and they would buy this kind of stuff. And so these people who, after they saw what happens to people who are trying to play both sides of the fence, they said, you know what? I'm over the magic. Now, I don't think that today if you buy your kids a, a trick deck of cards or you teach them how to pull a penny out of your ear or something, I don't think you should go burn that stuff. I mean, if God tells you to, fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with illusion uh, as long as you admit that it's illusion. As soon as you start pretending that it's real, that's where the problems come in. These guys realized, oh man, this isn't good. And so they had a big bonfire and burned the stuff. And everything that, that they burned was worth 50,000 pieces of silver. I'm not sure who actually counted it up. But, uh, you know, no doubt the church treasurer. And uh, so they burned all this stuff. And um, we don't know what these uh, uh, pieces of silver were worth because they use that term for a whole lot of different things. Could have, if it was a shekel, it would have been a few thousand dollars. Um, uh, some of the other, um, you know, Greek and Roman coins would have been worth even less than that. But it was obviously a good chunk of money. And uh, the result was the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. God's word spreads. Powerful things happen when several things happen. When people are committed and confess their sins and repent, turn around. When those who are phonies get called on the carpet and beat up and pantsed in order to show that, you know, this isn't how it looks, this isn't what a minister really is. And when these kinds of things happen, there's a purification and the church always benefits. The Word of God always benefits. It's one reason why in places in the world where there is persecution, the church is often so much stronger, witness so much more powerful. Here, you can get Christians together anywhere, and nobody's persecuted or threatened by it. And yet, we have people who are coming to church and living in a horrible lifestyle, being awful examples of what a Christian ought to be, and, and they see no problem with that. But when persecution comes, then people get their act together and they begin to really be committed. And, and when that happens, it's really a good thing. It's one reason why I don't freak out too much about what's happened in our society. I, I believe that we should vote by our conscience and, and all that, no doubt. But at the same time, I'm not worried about what's going to happen to our country. I'm not afraid if they make it illegal for me to tell the truth or... You know, if they say that, oh, you can't get a tax write-off for your offering, or, you, you know, the, am I in favor of those things? Of course not. But I'm not afraid of them either, because I'm not going to change my message, and uh, you know, I don't care what they do. I'm not worried about it. And if all of a sudden a lot of people leave the church because they're getting hassled for going to church, great. The ones who are left are the real deal, like we saw Sunday. They went out from among us because they weren't really of us. And so the church doesn't have anything to worry about. I don't care whoever wins the upcoming elections, whatever laws they pass, if they legalize marijuana, if our country ends up being another $3 trillion deficit in another couple of years, um, I'm not worried about God b being put out of business. In some ways, it might be the best thing for the church. So I'm not going so far as to suggest that you, you know, let's just keep, let's expand Obamacare. Let's do, you know, let's throw out some more stimulus money. But at the same time, I'm not afraid of that at all. Um, and you shouldn't be either because God's on the throne. He's in control. 
And the result of whatever he does is that the word of God will grow mightily and prevail. Now, verse 21, when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So here's his plan. He is at this point, he's been in Ephesus for a few years. So he's saying, he's here, he's saying, you know what, I need to go over here to Corinth and Athens, and then I need to head down to Jerusalem. So that's kind of his agenda at this point. He probably wanted to go back to Corinth, back to Achaia and Athens, because those believers there were relatively wealthy. In Jerusalem, the Christians were really hurting bad. And so we know, and Paul talked about it in several places, where he went and took up a collection and then took the money from those other remote churches and brought it to the church in Jerusalem. And so that's probably what he's planning on, but ultimately he's heading there and then he's, he's, uh, his intention is then to go to Rome. And he would in fact do that, it's just that he would go as a prisoner instead of as a missionary. And so um, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. Now, at this time, probably in, when he was in Ephesus was when he wrote, to, um, was when he wrote the book of um, 2 Corinthians. But then as he made his way around and came down here, that's probably where during this three, um, three months is probably when he wrote the book of, of Romans. And the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria. He decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians, Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus. Those last three guys we know some things about. The other guys we don't really know much about. These men going ahead waited for us so Luke stayed with Paul at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So the party kind of broke up up here, and then as they got up here to Troas, they joined up again, and then they would head over to Macedonia. And so uh, um, he... he uh, Let's see, lost my place, sorry about that. <laughs> okay. So they, they went to uh, Troas, and while he was at Troas, he stayed for a bit. And first day of the week when the disciples came together to, um, wait a minute, how did I skip into chapter 20? Okay, go back. <laughs> but we're in chapter 19. The 20, what, second verse? Yeah. Okay, so he says, I'm going to go to Rome. They went to Macedonia. He sent to Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. So they headed out to go over by Philippi. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Now, there, uh, there in, in uh, Ephesus, there was a huge temple to Diana. And it was big business to make these little models of the temple that would have a picture of Diana in it. And so this silversmith, Demetrius, was making a lot of money making those shrines of Diana. Diana was... was the God's name when she was supposedly on the earth, when she was up in the sky, her name was Luna, who the moon was named after, but a major goddess. And, um, and they made lots of profit from her. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation. He got all the other guys that were selling this junk and uh, making a lot of money off of it and said, men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. 
He, he wasn't like, oh, you know, we worship Diana. He was like, we're making money off Diana. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. Which is true. He's going, you can't have a handmade god. Well, he said, this is bad for business because we sell handmade gods. And so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, this temple of Diana was incredible in size, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide. It had like 127 60-foot solid marble pillars in this thing. It was a major attraction. It had been built four or 500 years before, had been burned down twice at least and destroyed, which was a major catastrophe for them. In about 400 B.C., um, actually in 400 B.C. when um, it was burned down and then it was burned down again about 40, 50 years later um, when Alexander the Great was born about that time, uh, 365 or something like that, and so they were saying, hey, what if this place got destroyed again? If there's riots or people won't come anymore. And then he's also saying that, you know, the idea is a lot of people come from the rest of the world to see this temple. And it's going to cut into the tourist trade. So he's saying, look, there's going to be a problem with this beautiful temple, which is going to cause less tourists to come to Ephesus. And also we're not going to sell our stuff. And so he got them all whipped up about uh, what a catastrophe this would be. And uh, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city, they didn't think Diana was great. They thought that the business they were in was great. So the whole city was filled with confusion, rushed into the theater with one accord, where they would have public meetings. And they seized Gaius and Aristarchus, two of the guys that were with Paul, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, he goes, hey, let me go bail them out. But the disciples said, no, no, they held him back. And some of the officials of Asia who were his friends begged him not to go into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused. There was a riot, basically. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. People just get caught up in the thing, and, and uh, it was out of control. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. See, they were against Paul, but now the people were also against the Jews. So it was just this massive scene. So the Jews picked this guy, Alexander, who is perhaps the same Alexander, the coppersmith, who uh, Paul talks about in Second Timothy, that the guy had been a Christian, but he had hurt Paul really bad and did him harm. And so maybe at this point he was a guy who was making gods and temples out of copper, later became a Christian, but later turned out to be you know, a loser. But the Jews picked him to get up and just let people know that this isn't a Jewish problem. But when they found out that he was a Jew, everybody with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, somehow an accountant managed to settle it down. He said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and don't do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, they can go to the courts. Let them bring charges against one another. They can go sue each other. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly, for we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly." So he gets up basically and says, look, the temple is fine. Diana is fine. 
Zeus is still on the throne. So why are we getting into this thing? He goes, what's going to happen is we're going to all end up being in trouble because Rome is going to hear that we're having riots in our city and you people are looting and acting like idiots. So settle down and let these Jews and Christians sue each other all they want. This isn't our problem. And so people got settled down and um, he dismissed the assembly and they all left. And uh, so, and then chapter 20 starts the place where I jump to and we'll come back to it in our, in our next meeting. Um, next Wednesday night I'm going to be down in El Salvador and so Justin Butorak is going to be sharing a Bible study with you. I hope you all come. I know it'll be really good and God's going to really bless that and like I've told you before we need to encourage young people who, are, who have hearts for ministry and, and, uh, and, and just see what God has to say through them and I know that it'll be really great next Wednesday and then I'll be back the following well I'll be, I'm not going to miss a Sunday I'm only missing Wednesday so I'll be here this Sunday and the next Sunday as well and then the next Wednesday is when we'll pick up where my wandering brain took me to chapter 20 and uh, so let's pray Lord thanks for your word it's so encouraging just to see what you did then and to know that you're the same God now. And, and so, Lord, we ask for that power of your Spirit to work in our lives, in our church, in everything that we do. Lord, help us to never be afraid to speak up when you call us to. Help everyone here who loves you to know that they aren't alone. And God, I just pray that you would work by your Spirit in our lives and just... Um, keep us focused on reality. Keep us walking in integrity. Anyone who isn't doing that, just remove, call them to repentance. And I thank you, God, for the fact that your church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. In Jesus' name, amen.